Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening your eyes to a new view of life. I'm McKay Christensen, and I'm excited you joined us today. You know, I love podcasts. It's like getting time back in your day because you can listen to podcasts while you drive, walk, exercise, or do work around the house. And you get time back because you can be learning while you're doing. So wherever you are right now, in your car, on the treadmill, or at your desk, seeking a little bit of inspiration, I hope this podcast today helps you open your eyes to some new ways of thinking and living. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about your perfectly imperfect life. Yogi Berra was a native of St. Louis. And before serving in the U.S. Navy during World War II, he signed a contract with the New York Yankees. Now, in the war, he served as a gunner's mate during the U.S. landing at Normandy on D-Day, where he earned a Purple Heart. He was only five feet, seven inches tall, yet despite his small stature, he was a powerful hitter and played catcher for the Yankees for eight seasons after returning from the war. After he retired as a player, he became a coach and manager for the New York Mets, then the Yankees, and then the Houston Astros. Overall, he played or coached in 21 World Series. Few, if any, players in baseball have ever achieved such a feat. But what made him most famous was not his baseball career, but rather his malapropisms. Now, a malapropism is a mistaken use of an incorrect word in place of a word with a similar sound, resulting in a nonsensical, sometimes humorous saying. For example, here's some quotes from Yogi. Baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. It ain't over till it's over. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. It's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. And if the world were perfect, it wouldn't be. Now, if you think about that last quote, if the world were perfect, it wouldn't be, you have to ponder its meaning just for a moment. Could it be that Yogi was saying, if the world were perfect, it would be less attractive because it is in the imperfection, in the flaws, and in the attempts that we find true beauty? If so, this is incredibly profound. And ironically, Yogi Berra was part of one of the most memorable perfect days in baseball. A perfect game is when a pitcher retires all the batters and no batter on the opposing team reaches base during the game. And the difference between a no-hitter and a perfect game is that with a no-hitter, you can walk a batter or they can get on base by error. And there have been 314 no-hitters in baseball history. But there have only been 23 perfect games in Major League history, and the last perfect game happened almost 10 years ago. Now, Yogi Berra was the catcher when his teammate Don Larson threw a perfect game in 1956 in Game 5 of the World Series. Then, in an amazing twist of irony, on July 18, 1999 in Yankee Stadium, Don Larson was asked to throw out the first pitch before the ball game. And Yogi Berra was there and caught the first pitch from Don in a bit of a celebration of that perfect game 40-plus years earlier. And wouldn't you know it, but the pitcher for the Yankees that day was David Cohn, 
And on that very day, in front of Larson and Barra, he would throw the 16th perfect game in baseball history. Now, the problem with the perfect game is that for the pitcher, it's far from perfect. Don Larson says the last two innings are just torture, not because you're smiling and having fun, but rather the anxiety, the pressure of keeping the perfect game alive is unbearable. And for me, this is a metaphor of sorts. You know, we seem to aspire to be perfect, but in the doing so, we often struggle with the anxiety it creates. And we can be tortured or stressed or even depressed if we can't allow ourselves to be imperfect and show our imperfections. Now, no one knows this better than the family of the Philadelphia Phillies pitcher who threw the 20th perfect game in history on May 29th, 2010. His name, Roy Halliday. Roy grew up playing baseball in Colorado. And after high school, he was drafted 17th overall by the Toronto Blue Jays. And after one year of pitching in the minors, where he changed his throwing motion, he made it permanently to the major league. And for the next 10 years, he would lead the major leagues in wins, complete games, and shutouts. Those closest to him would say he was in a constant pursuit of perfection. Perfection was an obsession with Roy, and he worked relentlessly to be perfect. As a result, he won the American League Cy Young Award, and in his 11th year in baseball, he was traded to the Phillies and signed a $60 million contract. The next year, in 2010, he threw a perfect game and also a no-hitter in the World Series. No other pitcher in baseball was closer to perfection than Roy Halladay. But his pursuit of perfection was not at all perfect. In the next season, Roy injured his back. And rather than take a season off to let his back heal, Roy, unable to admit or show weakness, continued to pitch. But to manage his pain, he used more and more painkillers, and soon he was addicted. But as many people know, this is a slippery slope. The more he pitched, the more he hurt his back, and the more he relied on drugs. He was hiding his drug usage, depressed, full of anxiety, and checked himself into a rehab center. But rehab only lasted a few weeks because he was afraid of the public learning he was at rehab. And soon he was unable to pitch at all and retired from baseball. But what didn't retire was the addiction and depression. It continued. You see, he didn't know how to find his identity outside of baseball. He would try rehab again, but sunk deeper into his depression. And he stopped taking care of himself and was lost. You know, from time to time, Roy found his escape in the air. A licensed pilot, he flew often. And one morning in 2017, he was supposed to be flying to a nearby airport, but went to the Gulf of Mexico instead. Witnesses reported his plane was doing extreme dive maneuvers, climbing high and then diving straight down to the water. And on the last dive, the plane didn't pull up. The plane disintegrated on impact and Halliday was killed. His body was found later in four feet of water. Now, the toxicology reports said Roy had morphine, opioids, muscle relaxers, antidepressants, and a sleep aid in his system. Roy's wife, Brandy, would later say, I hate the word perfect. 
if there were anything I would want people to know, it's that we're all flawed in one way or another. But all of us imperfect people can have perfect moments. Now, I don't know about you, but I agree with Brandy. We are all imperfect and flawed in one way or another. And sometimes we get a bit lost when we think we must be perfect or expect others to be perfect. So what happens when we insist on living with the unrealistic need for perfection? Well, first, because of unreasonable expectations, we catastrophize mistakes, meaning we tend to blow out of proportion our mistakes, even if they're reasonable mistakes. In this case, we hide flaws, get defensive if mistakes are likely to be seen by others, and this lack of vulnerability causes extreme anxiety and stress in our lives. As a result, we tend to isolate ourselves and are hesitant to be open. Second, we expect others to be perfect and tend to scrutinize every detail of someone's actions. And this constant scrutiny of other people causes strained relationships and stress and anxiety in their life and ours. In either of these cases, what are the end results? Well, it keeps us from taking risks and we become rigid in our approach to life because we can't accept imperfection. It allows negative self-talk to gain a foothold in your life. You see, perfectionists tend to be highly self-critical. You may find your self-talk containing words like, well, that was a stupid mistake, or you should have been better prepared, or someone else would have done a better job. Perfectionism tends to affect our decision-making. You see, there's so much emotion wrapped up in avoiding the appearance of mistakes that we tend to place that ahead of other important factors when making decisions. And I see this all the time in important decisions like career choices and the risk-taking associated with starting a new business, for example. Perhaps, most important, perfectionism wreaks havoc on relationships. You see, when we're ultra-critical of others, that impacts how we interact with others. Even worse is when we ruminate. Rumination is when we focus obsessively on our mistakes, and we cycle and recycle them, and other people's reactions to our mistakes, and a host of other self-critical thoughts. And this ruminates over and over again in our mind. You know, the definition of ruminate is a deep or considered thought about something. <laughs> but another definition is the action of chewing the cud. When animals such as cows or sheep chew the cud, they slowly chew their partly digested food over and over again in their mouth before finally swallowing it. Likewise, when we ruminate, we chew our mistakes over and over again, bringing it up again and repeating the process each time, inviting more and more toxicity to the process. Psychologists call rumination a maladaptive trait, a harmful response to a life challenge. So, how do we lose our perfectionist mindset and habits like chewing our mistakes over and over, but still pursue excellence in our life? Well, Harriet Breaker once said, striving for excellence motivates you. Striving for perfection is demoralizing. So let's consider a few tools to help us. First, we've got to use the right leverage. Now, a lever is a rigid bar resting on a pivot used to help move a heavy or firmly fixed load with one end when pressure is applied to the other end of the lever. 
And it enables you to move something that weighs a lot with much less force than if you tried to just lift that object unassisted. Likewise, some people may try the blunt force method of overcoming such complex things as perfectionism and defensiveness with sheer will. But a much more elegant and effective leverage or lever exists. Here's one of those tools. Determine. Really determine what you care about. For example, could you care less about appearances and more about the actual work you're engaged in? Care less about the problems and care more about the progress? Care less about what other people think and more about who you are becoming? Care less about immediate success and more about doing well in the season that you're in? Let me give you a simple example. In my business strategy class at the university, every semester, a student comes to me with the same conversation. They want their quiz score adjusted or feel a question was not fair or want to know exactly what will be on the final exam. Their objective is to secure the grade. These students are in class only to get an A grade, and they're almost always uptight about something. Now, I don't blame them. Grades are important in securing a job, and they drive motivation. But there are also students in my class each semester who come to talk about a principle of strategic management or to gather insights on the case we're discussing or just to learn more about a particular topic. These students are in the class to learn. And these students seem to have a sense of happiness about them. And it's interesting to me which students get better grades. It's almost always the student who wants to learn because they are focused and care about the topic at hand. They handle grades and coursework as learning mechanisms. And honestly, I love teaching these types of students. Likewise, when we care almost exclusively about appearances like grades, we lose the peace and joy that comes from caring about the progress that we're going through or how we're growing as a person. So you can see that what you care about makes all the difference. So in the moments when you may be getting defensive or fearful of making a mistake or feel the sense of perfectionism setting in, stop and ask yourself, what do I really care about? Next, how do we deal with unfair criticism from others? We all have had a dose of it from time to time in our life. Well, here's a hint. Rather than ruminating on it or pondering ways to defend yourself or get even, ask yourself, again, what you care about. Perhaps you care more about those other people so you can easily drop it. Or perhaps you care about getting better as a person so you take what is useful in that criticism and try to improve with that and drop the rest. Here's what I've learned. I can only focus on one or two things and do those things well. And if I focus on too many things in my life, I end up not making progress on anything. So I've learned to narrow down what I pay attention to, and that allows me to jettison things that might otherwise occupy my attention. As the saying goes, it's easy to say no when there's a bigger yes burning inside you. So when I get feedback that might cause me to be defensive, I say to myself, I'm letting that go because I have this other focus right now in my life. I have something more important that needs my thinking and attention. 
And over time, this has become a great habit. The ability to choose to care about one thing and leave the others behind. Remember, it's easy to drop something or say no to something when you have a bigger yes to focus on. Here's another tool. Ask yourself, where is your energy best spent? Now, here's what I've noticed. When we make a mistake or receive criticism or anticipate making a mistake, there is a lot of energy, brain time, and emotional energy focused on self-defense. But if you think about it, you can spend the same energy focused on self-improvement rather than self-defense. If you hearken back to Carol Dweck's research about having a growth mindset, here's what she learned. In her study, university students were primed by reading one of two specific passages written in the style of a news article. For one half of the students, the article said that intelligence was determined at a young age. We have a fixed amount of intelligence then and throughout life. For the other half of the students, the article said that intelligence could be increased substantially over our lifespan. Then, all the participants were given just four minutes to read a long and confusing passage from Sigmund Freud. After they read the passage, they answered some questions that supposedly gauged their comprehension. But no matter their actual score, participants were told they scored in the 37th percentile. Not good by any measure, but not so bad that they were truly the bottom of the barrel. Then, the researchers found that those who had been primed to think intelligence was fixed made themselves feel better by comparing their performance to those who did worse than them. But the participants who had been primed to think intelligence was malleable coped by being curious about the strategies of those who performed better. You see, rather than getting defensive, they adopted a growth mindset and tried to learn how to improve their own performance. You see, you can apply your energy in one of two directions, defending or learning. Because the truth is, nothing is perfect. Life is messy and relationships are complex and outcomes are uncertain. And people, including ourselves, are irrational. And when we direct our energy towards growth, towards what we can learn, we avoid getting sidetracked by what's happening around us. So here's the next tool to eliminating perfectionism and rumination. Forgiveness. When someone is not perfect around you or in how they treat you, simply forgive. There is huge power in this simple tool. To illustrate, let's return to perfect games in baseball. After Roy Halladay threw his perfect game in May of 2010, the 21st perfect game almost happened just a few weeks later. Detroit Tigers pitcher Armando Galarraga was pitching against the Cleveland Indians. He retired the first 26 batters. And in the ninth inning, he was facing the last batter of the game. One more strikeout or out meant that he would be the 21st player in Major League history to throw a perfect game. This was the moment that every pitcher dreams of. Now, Jason Donald, a Cleveland player, was at bat, and Donald hit an easy ground ball. Galarraga's teammate fielded the ball and threw it towards first base. And if the ball arrived in time, before the runner, the umpire would call the batter out and it would seal the 21st perfect game in history. However, Jim Joyce, the first base umpire, for whatever reason, called the batter safe at first. 
everyone in the ballpark, all the Tigers players, the coaches, me and the television audience were in shock. We couldn't believe that the obvious out was called safe. The television announcers calling the game replayed the play over and over again, each time in slow motion, viewers and everyone in the stadium could see that the player was indeed out. It was perfectly obvious. But at the time, there was no replay, and the call was the call, and it would stand. Galarraga had pitched a perfect game only to lose his place in history on an imperfect, flawed call from the first base umpire on the last batter of the night. Galarraga would retire the next batter and end up with a one-hit game, and the Tigers would win. But the win was of little consolation to the fans, the players, and Galarraga himself. Well, after the game, a tearful first base umpire, Jim Joyce, was devastated. He realized he made an incorrect call. And how did Galarraga, the pitcher who missed out on a dream of a lifetime, respond? Well, he promptly forgave Joyce, telling reporters after the game, nobody's perfect. The next day, the Tigers and the Indians played again. And, you know, before each game, the managers bring out the lineup cards and meet with the umpires prior to play. On this day, the Tigers sent Galarraga to bring out the lineup card. And there he would meet Jim Joyce face to face. Joyce again broke down in tears because of his mistake, and Galarraga was there to assure him again that he understood. No one is perfect. Now, the entire experience became one of the most widely viewed videos on YouTube. And I've used this video in my trainings for years to talk about sportsmanship and forgiveness and the fact that we all make mistakes and we all need forgiveness. So how do you forgive when it's hard to forgive? Well, let me tell you about this experience. In 2007, a news report came out of Salt Lake City and told the following story. Here's the report. The Christopher Williams family was struck late Friday in Salt Lake when a Jeep Cherokee traveling south on 2000 East slammed into the family's northbound Volkswagen Jetta. The SUV flipped, and the driver, who suffered minor scrapes and bruises, fled on foot. The sedan suffered heavy passenger side damage, killing the pregnant mother, Michelle Williams, 41, and two of her children. The surviving father and six-year-old boy, Sam, were transported in extremely critical condition to Salt Lake City hospitals. The couple's other son, Michael, was not in the car. Family spokesman James Wood said the father has improved considerably since the crash. His son, however, remains in the intensive care unit with bleeding and swelling of the brain, a broken collarbone, and cracked ribs. From his hospital bed, Christopher Williams asked for a prayer, not for himself, but for the teenage driver who police say smashed into his family sedan, killing his wife and two of his children, who was now jailed on suspicion of automobile homicide. How could Williams, after losing his pregnant wife and two children, ask for prayers for the teenage driver? Now, what many people who read the news report didn't know was that when Williams was 16, he accidentally struck and killed a four-year-old boy in the avenues of Salt Lake City. That news report in 1981 read, On July 18th, when he was going to his job as an orderly at the LDS Hospital, Two young boys ran from between parked cars and onto 8th Avenue. 
William's car struck both boys, who were brothers. James Forster, four, died three days later at Primary Children's Medical Center. His three-year-old brother survived. Police said Williams was traveling about 20 miles an hour. He had absolutely no chance to react, said Williams' father, Paul Williams. And as a result of the accident, says Paul Winterton, a lifetime friend, Williams knows exactly what this young man in Friday's accident is going through. You see, following his 1981 accident, people showered Williams with forgiveness and kindness, said Winterton, and I don't know of anyone who believes in redemption more than Chris Williams. So, how do you get better at forgiving? Well, remember the many times in life you've needed forgiveness. You see, the great thing about imperfection is that we all have a strong dosage of it. So when we think we're justified in our position, or don't want to, or feel like forgiving, remember just how many times we've needed and relied upon the forgiveness and grace and goodness of others. Now, this is easy for me because I need a lot of forgiveness. Now, just a few pieces of perspective that may help us in our quest not to get hampered by making mistakes. Here's what I've learned. There is great benefit in failure. Just like a muscle is built back stronger after it's broken down through exercise, so we grow by attempting something and failing. This is not a cheap platitude. Neurologically, our brains become more resilient to whatever failures and discomfort we experience regularly. So, how do you move on from mistakes quickly and easily without the rumination and worry that we often tend to drag along after making our mistakes? You see, here's the deal. People think the way to change their feelings is to somehow get motivated. They tend to think that the motivation will come about through more thinking. But in my opinion, this often does more harm than good. The best way to get past mistakes and deal productively with the emotions of them is action. Even small actions bring about the peace and emotional strength to move forward. Here's a simple example. Let's say you let your spouse down by forgetting to do something he or she was counting on, and they're upset. Now, we may be apt to ruminate or get defensive and carry the emotion of the event along with us for a while. However, if you turn and do something immediately, take action to either right the wrong or demonstrate improved behavior, it may help your spouse, but it will allow you to drop the emotional baggage left over from your mistake. I've also learned that when we're quick to apologize, admit mistakes, or commit to doing better and approach life humbly, that this disarms potential criticism. This builds faith and trust, and it makes for a better, more accurate relationship with other people. Now, it takes a great deal of character and strength to apologize quickly, but it also builds character when we apologize quickly. You see, when we seek to redirect and right our wrongs immediately, we tend to build relationships no matter how big our mistakes. And here's something else I've learned, that we would worry a lot less about what other people think about us if we really knew how seldom they do. My experience is that people don't pay that much attention, and we would really worry a lot less if we had a clear view of our place in their thinking. Now, Perhaps we can leave behind the title of perfectionist and adopt the title of optimalist. 
An optimalist recognizes that failure is an ever-present possibility, and he or she acknowledges that time spent pursuing flawlessness is time squandered. In that light, the optimalist pursues the course of action that's likeliest to produce the best results with the least amount of time. So to be clear, the optimalist is no less interested in success than the perfectionist, but the difference is in how he or she defines success. It has nothing to do with flawless execution, nor is it about expecting perfect results. Rather, the optimalist defines success as achieving the best output possible with the least amount of inputs. You know, I used to run in a running group, and there was a man in that group who always showed up and was very consistent in his training. And despite his commitment, he wasn't the fastest runner, and neither was I. Now, he ran several marathons with me, and whenever we talked about our slower running times, he would say, No matter how slow you go, I'm still lapping everyone on the couch. Be an optimalist. See the bright side of your imperfect performance. And when you do, you find great satisfaction in what you are able to do. Now, as we near the end today, I'd like to remind us of what Brandy, the wife of Roy Halliday, said. She said, if there were anything I would want people to know, It's that we are all flawed in one way or another. But all of us imperfect people can have perfect moments. So despite all the talk today about imperfection, we all have perfect moments in life. And I believe it's exceptionally healthy to seek to be our best in these moments. I've had a few near-perfect moments in my life, and it's been quite healthy to reflect on what they are and how they impacted my life. And I'm certain there are perfect moments waiting for you in your imperfect life. Why am I certain? Because I believe in grace. I believe that people give grace more often than we think, and God loves to give grace. And I believe that grace is an enabling power that will help you find those perfect moments in life. I'm also certain that there are so many good things coming soon in your life. So open your eyes to these perfect moments that are waiting for you. You are destined to do amazing things. And the world is waiting for the perfect moments you can bring to the lives of those around you. As we end today, remember to end the unhealthy anxiety over being perfect and stop the chewing of the cud, the rumination of our mistakes. Determine the one or two important things you really care about And remember, it's easy to say no when there's a bigger yes burning inside you. Put your energy to use in righting wrongs and forgiving. And remember to forgive quickly and take action, even small action, to put things right. And last, be an optimalist and watch your life, your actions be more inspired. Thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become. 